0: what is up everybody i'm chad that's ben and we are doing the damn thing it's the podcast exclusively for the 10 and 20 dollar patrons of the co-main event this is the show where we talk about all the non-MMA related content we think might be of interest to you guys. I think we're going to get into both this week. I think we'll get into non-MMA related content and some MMA related content, because this is a very exciting week on doing the damn thing. We are joined by a brother in arms, so to speak, a guy we've wanted to get on the show for a long time, a guy you've been asking for over on the official Discord message board And this week, the timing finally worked out for everybody. You know him as the host of the Tides of History podcast over on Wondery. You know him as the author of the tremendous book, The Verge, Reformation, Renaissance, and 40 Years That Shook the World. He's got a new podcast called The Pursuit of Dadliness. Both Ben Folks and I have appeared on it. Uh, He's a man of letters. He's a man of brains and brawn you know him as the mma boy who made good he's the one and only patrick wyman patrick i'm not lying this is a huge honor for the whole co-main event expanded universe and i know all the little co-maniacs are excited to have you on i will ask you the same question that i always ask ben to begin this show how you doing
1: I'm doing fantastic, especially after I, I'm feeling really hyped up by that introduction. I feel like I'm about ready to go on stage to a WCW show in about '94. Uh, I'm feeling I'm feeling fantastic. No, this is a this is a huge honor for me. I have been a listener of the Co Main Event for many many years. I, I believe I'm still a patron, though not at your fancy ten and twenty dollar level. Some of us uh, some of us have some other expenses weighing us down, are uh, not all rich enough to afford that particular tier of uh, of Co Main Event fandom. Uh, no, I, this like seriously. Your guys' show is huge formative influence on on me in my early dad years, and I, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate it. It's so good to be
0: talking to you. Yeah,
2: well, yeah. I, I imagine that we're... your your kettlebell bill alone must be pretty high. <laughs> I follow you on the grams. For people who don't follow Patrick on the grams, you really should because you you get on there for one thing. I noticed with your home gym you seem to have given over your entire garage space to it. Like you're not getting a car in there at, at any point these days. Are you?
1: Oh, so, okay. This is, this was the deal I had to make with my wife was that I would get half of the garage. So everything oh, okay. has to be able to be stored. On the other half, so she can get her car inside because she's not parking that baby out in the uh, 115 degree Arizona sun. That's that's a me thing. That's that's the choice that I made, and I can't put that on her. Uh,
2: <laughs> okay. See, this this is a choice that I find myself confronting as I get deeper into the garage gym life. Is because right now I got things sort of cordoned off to where I get the car in there at night, all that kind of stuff. But here we have the opposite problem. We don't have to worry about the car heating up out there. But winter is coming. Yeah. And the yeah. problem as anybody who has put a car in a garage in the, the Northern climate will tell you is that you drive around out there, you get a bunch of snow and everything packed up under your car, you pull it into the garage, all that stuff is going to melt and your garage is just wet and gross. Pretty much all winter long. Can't have that. I can't have that around my exercise equipment. So I'm thinking, do I just go all in at this point, put mats throughout the entire goddamn thing Mm -hmm. and just be like, listen, people, the garage is no longer a place for car storage. The garage is where dad gets down with his <laughs> weights and just, just, and, and then I have to, the problem of, I'm going to have to go out and get in a cold car every morning, scrape ice off the windshield. But that is that the trade-off I'm willing to make? And I'm kind of thinking maybe it is. See, these,
1: these are the hard questions that we have to ask ourselves. And my follow-up was going to be, what's your flooring situation? What are we looking at in the home gym? Cause that's going to determine, you know, ease of cleaning. If it's just a matter of you pull the car in, you pull it out and you got to do a little squeege squeege on the horse stall mat like that's that may be viable but if we're talking you know a more in-depth cleaning process to get it ready for use who's got time for
2: that see i'm glad you mentioned the horse stall mat i just learned about that as a feasible option because i have like the good flooring mats down under my squat rack and i was surprised at how expensive they were yeah they're They're, it's like extraordinarily
1: expensive
2: (laughs) like as expensive as the squat rack eh, almost to get those and then i have a friend who is a hardcore lifter actually and is a a woman who was a few years younger than me and probably the hardest core lifter I know in real life including Chad Dundas uh she would she would put us all to shame and she was telling and she used to run her own personal training studio and she was telling me nah what you need to do is go to the ranch supply store yep. get a horse stall mat for much cheaper put that down and it'll work just as well for most of your stuff
1: that's, Wow. That's- that's exactly correct. The horse stall mat is the way to go. The real problem, though, is if, if you get the, the stall mats, you want to make sure that you get them all at once. You don't want to have to go. Okay. You don't want to do multiple uh, rounds of buying horse stall mats because they are non standard in uh, in in thickness and appearance. So like they'll tell you they're whatever the standard thickness is. They're always off. They're always off. And the last thing you want is to be lifting on an uneven surface. So I've got some that are like the uh, that, that have little like raised bumps on them. I've got some that are uh, uh, that are purely flat. There's like probably an eighth of an inch of difference in width between them. It's a it's a goddamn mess is what I'm saying. So <laughs> is, you want you want to avoid that particular dynamic. Um but yeah, the horse stall mats are the way to go. They're they're super easy to clean. You don't feel bad for beating them up. They'll save your floor. Like they're 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 relatively cheap. Plus, you get to go to like the tractor supply or the ranch supply store and explain to somebody like like some pimple faced teenager with a a denim shirt tucked into his pants why you're buying eight horse <laughs> stall mats. Uh, and that's always a fun thing too.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: Wow, we're six minutes into this, and I already had my mind blown. My whole idea of mats just has been totally rearranged in the last six minutes. I, too, am a big fan of the Patrick wyman lifting content over on the socials. I always watch it, uh, and I'm always amazed because Patrick's out here pushing a lot more weight than I am, for sure. But you know, the moment, Pat, that I realized that you... Well, I guess I always knew that you were a hardcore lifter, but the moment that I realized that you were among the hardest of the hardcore lifters was when I saw one of your Instagram posts where I think you were doing the snatch and you made like an offhand, offhand comment about how your weightlifting coach was Romanian. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, oh man. shit, man. Yeah. Patrick Wyman is that's as extreme as you He's, can get to go find yourself a Romanian lifting coach. It,
2: yeah, it it's was, like having a Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach, basically. It's,
1: it's, so I, I was lucky enough to have a Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach back in the day. Uh, and now I di- I did I went and I found myself a Romanian weightlifting coach who happens to live in suburban Phoenix which says a lot about the the glories of the interconnected global world in which we find ourselves uh he he's like it he's a fascinating guy so he was a member of the Romanian secret police uh, and, uh, and but he was also like a European champion weightlifter. Uh, he moved to the United States like, 10 or 12 years ago, speaking almost no English. And now he's a big time American citizen, big time. He's got an Eagle on his license plate holder on his car. Uh, It's it's a great dynamic. I would describe him as uh, extremely divorced. Uh, he's, uh, I, I, mean that in the best way possible, he's now remarried, but he still carries a lot of divorced guy energy with him. Um, and he also was recently, recently completed a master's degree in marriage and family therapy. So you're in there wow. and you're a man of many parts, right? Uh, you're in there and you're talking about, uh, and, and you're talking about lifting some heavy ass weights. And at the same time, he's like, how are you dealing with your trauma? <laughs> <laughs> and so it's it's really a fantastic dynamic i highly recommend it his name is Istvan. uh we we love Istvan. uh it, it's it's fun i'm really sad though because the gym that particular gym is closing and he's no. moving to like sublet from a crossfit facility that is too far from where i live and he's only doing classes at night and at night i'm doing kids stuff so yeah. i'm gonna ha- i'm gonna have to move on unfortunately but it's it's been a, an incredibly fun ride i've learned so much from him and like you like you imagine an Olympic weightlifting gym run by a Romanian dude in Phoenix is going to attract some fucking characters Yeah, and this, and this is exactly the case. We've got a surgical tech named Coco, uh, who's uh, uh, a, a, borderline like uh, like competitive national weightlifter in her, in her age and weight class. Who's uh, as she's, she's a character loves her nineties. Hip hop um, bitching about uh, bitching about how much rent is for her daughter at Northern Arizona university. Uh, you got uh, you got Rob, the uh, the vegan um, Second Amendment absolutist who rides a bike 15 miles in from Mesa every day. Uh, this is it's 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 a vibe in there. You know, you get to meet some people. And this is what I enjoy about it, because I would never be exposed to that in my daily life otherwise. So, you know, I got to like I'm a man of the people. I got to get out there and be among them. And a, a weightlifting gym is a good place to meet some people absolute characters yeah, yeah. go well, lumberjacks okay. by the yeah.
0: way out there at the <laughs> northern arizona university now patrick last week when you and i taped our episode of the pursuit of dadliness which we do want to get to in the second hour second or third hour of this show since we're done talking <laughs> yes, sorry i'm just all over uh, the place here we're
2: doing some joe rogan shit here this time <laughs> yeah. just talking just talking all day long
0: i am high as a motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> and we're gonna get our producer to start showing funny gorilla videos any mm-hmm. second Uh, Mm -hmm. When you and I taped last week, you mentioned that your physical situation, your injury situation might force you out of the Olympic lifting game. You said this, and then like two days later, I saw you posting videos of you doing, I believe, the clean and jerk at a mock weightlifting competition. And I was like, Patrick Wyman is a liar. He's a (laughs) two-faced snake of a liar.
1: I'm not a liar. It just hurts like a motherfucker. It really hurts. Uh, so I, that was the most, I, I, I managed to clean and jerk one sixteen kilos. So that's like two fifty two hundred and fifty five 255 pounds, which is my best in a competition setting. You know, I did not cut weight for this one. I was, I I was, I was rolling in there quite literally. And, uh, the, so I, but like, I managed to get the weight up, but that's 10 kilos more than I've done since I hurt my ankle a couple of months ago, which I, I hurt playing basketball in an eight foot hoop. Mind you, I was uh, I was shooting (laughs) because
2: you were trying to do like windmill dunks and shit. huh? No,
1: no, it was literally a layup. It was literally a layup. I went up for a layup and I came down and my ankle was just like, no, you're not you're not doing that. Like we're, that's like you, what what do you mean? Like get a little bit of air off the ground. Like that's this, it's yeah, too forget much to a Yeah. So, uh, but I, I put up, I put up a good lift, but now my ankle just, it hurts so bad. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't handle this anymore. I like there's, I love going to physical therapy. I'm in physical therapy all the time. I'm on a first name basis with everybody at my local physical therapy place and a couple of years ago she was the 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 woman i was working with at the time was like well like how much pain do you want to deal with like you can do this stuff if you want to but like how much are you comfortable hurting on a day to day basis and so that's kind of the constantly changing equation that i'm trying to figure out is like how much like how much pain am i comfortable with like d- like uh, how much when i get out of bed in the morning how many pops Like, are we, are we talking like six pops that I can do six pops, like 12 pops We're we're talking, that's where things are getting a little tougher for me.
2: Okay. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, I've seen you mention this before uh, on Twitter, I believe. And I think this is a, a thing that Chad and I are both kind of familiar with is that, you know, you went and got your history PhD and probably, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I've seen you write before that you thought kind of when you were first doing it, that the job you would end up with was college history professor and only to then emerge out of a PhD program and find those jobs don't exist that much anymore, especially for people just coming out of a program. They're held on to like the tenure track jobs by increasingly ancient faculty who aren't budging and aren't going anywhere. And then to find yourself as basically a professional podcaster Uh, Seems like a very different kind of life, but you're also still doing the same thing and arguably to a much more engaged and interested audience than you would be as a college professor. And I'm curious how you square this sort of where I've ended up versus what I expected aspect of your life and career.
1: Uh that is a really good question. And it's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about over the years. Like the, so I was 100% convinced that I was gonna be a history professor and I was gonna live my life. Like, you know, I didn't think I was gonna end up teaching at like Harvard or nothing, but I, I thought like, ah, hey, you know, I'll, like I could probably teach at Montana State University. I could end up in, you know, I, I could end up in Flagstaff, Northern Arizona or a place like that. Or, you know, the East Kentucky Bible School for the Blind. Like I, you know, wherever, as long as I'm getting to, getting to teach history, I thought that'd be great. Um, It became clear to me uh, very early on that even those like what I was thinking of as like kind of second tier job type things do not exist for and and did not exist, especially for people who were in the position that I was in, where like I went to a good school. I went to what was pretty clearly a second tier research university, right? Like, so every year, there are only a few of these tenure track jobs, even at places like even at what you would think of as like the worst uh party school you can imagine is still the best job that I could have ever hoped for. And the and so I I did the math probably in about 2013 after I had done my qualifying exams and I was starting to work on my dissertation. And I was I was pretty burned out at that point. I I was like I I was 28. I had done nothing but school for my entire life. I was smoking a lot of reefer and doing a lot of Muay Thai. And I was kind of reevaluating like where I was at and what I, what I wanted. And I went through and I did the math and I counted the number of tenure track job openings in my field. And I realized, and then I counted the number of completed PhDs in my field. And I looked at the trend and I was like, okay, so there are fewer tenure track jobs in my field than there were five years ago. There are probably going to be fewer still in five years. And at this very moment, I would have about a one in 16 chance. There are about 16 newly minted PhDs for every one tenure track position. And I saw people that I had gone to college with or people that I had done my PhD with who were finishing up and they were getting into these like adjuncting jobs where they were going to four different universities around LA. They were making 30 grand a year with no health insurance. And I'm like, that. I feel like I can do something different than that. Like it's not worth hanging on to this um, kind of amorphous dream of of teaching college students if I'm going to have to be like absolutely impoverished in order to do it. So then I got really into MMA and uh, I started doing podcasts in MMA and I started writing professionally about MMA or semi-professionally. Um, and I got really lucky and I got some really fun and cool opportunities. And then when I finished my PhD, it was like, inordinately clear to me that I was never going to do anything else in academia. Like one of my advisors, God bless her. um, She, she looks at me and she was holding a knife at the time. And she says, Patrick, you're an academic magpie. Like I just could not focus on things uh, to (laughs) to, enough to do it. Like she really was holding a knife. It was a small knife, but a knife nonetheless. Um, it, It just became very clear to me. Like that was not the life for me. I wasn't cut out for that and that there had to be something different. And you know, I, I like, I had no idea that it was going to work out at all. I just kind of like did stuff and then went right back to, to worrying about, you know, like, is my son going to shit all over me? Um, that's that that's kind of the path that I took. And But it's, it's you know, I wake up every day and I'm thankful for it because I get to do basically my dream job. Like, you know, like probably 90% of the stuff I do on a day-to-day basis professionally is stuff that I want to do, which is an insane ratio. Like, yeah. yeah. Ninety like ninety percent. Are you kidding? Like, that's insane. And so I, I'm just super lucky. I I have a lot of fun with what I do. I really enjoy it. I hope that comes through in the stuff that I do. Like, I'm I'm
2: really genuinely happy to be there always. Well, and I mean, again, everybody who's listening to it has opted in uh mm-hmm. from a, an array of stuff that they have to choose from to fill their time. They they've decided, you know, I'm gonna listen to this podcast, download, subscribe, whatever. And you know, if you're teaching college. Uh, history classes even if you're sometimes teaching to mostly history majors you're also going to be teaching to people who are fulfilling a requirement people are sort of dragging themselves in hungover and are just sort of going through the motions to to jump through a hoop uh and i would imagine like you know they're that would be maybe over a long term less satisfying than having a bunch of people who are really interested and engaged and want to learn about this stuff.
1: Yeah. you know, what sucks grading grading sucks. (laughs) Like grading grading papers. Absolute bullshit. Hate doing it. Hate grading. Hate. Uh, like I, I I hate having to be in a classroom with people who very clearly don't want to be there. Like, uh, and, and sometimes what's worse is being in there with somebody who really does want to be there, but, is is not let's say like not all there uh, in the way that you're hoping that they will be like the 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 young woman who came up and asked me like when did game of thrones take place when i was teaching a medieval history class (laughs) that was yikes um yeah, I, I didn't enjoy that particular part of it. No, this is like I, I tell when I have academic guests on, I tell them that the audience is a lot like talking to a group of like upper division undergraduates who really want to be there. So like people who have opted in, who want to do that, who are interested in the topic, who have a baseline level of knowledge about it and, and have actively made the choice to be there, like they want to hear what you have to say. So like be excited about it because. People are stoked, you know, like they like they're not doing this because they have to, they're not doing this to fulfill credit requirements. Like they're doing it because they are genuinely interested in in the topic. And that's just like the coolest thing in the world. That's like, I can't I can't believe that um there are this many people who want to hear about, you know, like uh I was thinking about beveled rim bulls from the city of Uruk. They're like these mass-produced, ugly shit, like you do. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, because I wanted to see if I could buy one, because they're they're incredibly ugly. Right. Like they're like uh, they're incredibly ugly pieces of pottery, but they were mass produced like 5000 years ago. And I'm thinking about these beveled rim bulls and I'm like, do people actually want to hear about this shit? Like, that's insane. Like That's a, that's an insane thing to be able to do. So I I don't know. I couldn't possibly be happier. Can you buy one? Is that just a thing person could do? I'm I'm looking into antiquities laws now. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I well, the thing is, like, this is why. I feel like as a collectible artifact, ancient pottery is good is because there's so much of it. It's like, no, like I hope that in a thousand years, nobody is like, you know what? I don't think you can take this piece of Ikea across state lines. That's the, (laughs) that's the cool thing about ancient pottery is there really is a lot of it. So, I mean, I would imagine finding like a fully intact one would be kind of hard, but I don't know. I'm going to find out. And if it's not like, and they're often shockingly cheap, like, hundred bucks maybe for this piece of like 2000 or 3000 year old pottery well, wait are you
2: getting them from like an isis guy in a white toyota tacoma uh who's yeah just in a, a, he's cutting you a good deal
1: yeah he's got a machine gun in the back yeah he's he's, <laughs> just, he's rolled straight in from the syrian desert with a with a, a chest full of looted artifacts that's the guy i'm going to um, yeah. that's, that's no i i have no idea i, I should pro- I'm, I'm gonna ask some people because i really don't want to buy like a trafficked artifact Um, like. But I but I would like to acquire some some pieces of history for myself.
0: Mm. The fact that you just said that you are trying to buy a self-admitted ugly piece of ancient pottery kind of gave me a window into why you and your wife had to agree to split the garage. <laughs> 50-50. Uh, OK, here's what I wanted to ask you for real. Starting a podcast is one thing. The barrier of entry is incredibly low at this point, as Ben Folks and I can both attest to. It's another thing entirely to hook up with a major platform like Wondery and be able to actually make money doing your podcast. So I was wondering, what was the the path from starting Tides to like hooking up with Wondery? Or did one of them happen before the other? And while you answer this, I'm going to be furiously scribbling notes.
1: Yeah, so <laughs> I started... <laughs>
0: <laughs> so
1: I started with Wondery, actually with my first show, Fall of Rome. They were a brand new podcast network at that point, and they were just looking to sign up anybody they could to sell ad space on existing shows, which back in 2016 when I started that show was still a viable way for a podcast network to make money. Uh, They were still in the business of taking um, content that other people owned and selling ads against it. That was still kind of the prevalent business model in that space. So lots of companies that now no longer exist or have been subsumed by others. That was basically what they did. Wondery, I think in order to just generate some revenue when they first started, w- got into that business. They found my show. We emailed back and forth. You know, two weeks later, they were selling ads on on my fall of Rome thing. I, it became clear to me pretty quick, though, that I couldn't do a show on the fall of Rome forever. Like I needed to do kind of a more general history show that was more flexible that I could hopefully have going as a long-term thing. So from the very beginning, I made that in partnership with Wondery. We own it 5050. It was one of the first original shows that they made. I think it's probably the longest running original show they still have on their thing. As a result of that, because the company has gone through like enormous upheaval since then, there's nobody left there who remembers. Making the show with me. and at the very beginning, <laughs> uh, the 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 former CEO of Wondery was um, convicted of bribery for um, bribing the world Cup rights for uh, oh, for Fox. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. was that was hernan. That's my guy. Uh, <laughs> he He was the charges recently the, the he was recently acquitted. Oh, wow. um, but after being found guilty first, like he clearly did it, but there was some question about whether the United States government could prosecute him for an international crime. And as I understand it, he's now off scot-free with several hundred million dollars. So good good for him. Um, good for him. But yeah, that's, that's like... Those were the people I was doing business with who are now like no longer at that company. I have kind of a weird and unique deal with them that I don't know if they'll want to continue renewing forever because they have to do things like send me revenue reports. Uh, and I don't think they want to do that. I think they would just prefer to own the stuff and, and hire me to make it. So I don't know how long it's going to go on at this point, but I'm just going to kind of ride the wave until until it's over and done with. But it, the making it from the beginning with them It was kind of indicative of where podcasts as an industry were headed at that point, which is where they now all want to make original shows that they own 100%. So they own the intellectual property, they get 100% of the ad revenue, and they are hiring people as contractors to make them instead of taking on partners who have equity in the products that they're making. Uh, And over the years, it's become harder and harder to make a living as an independent podcaster because there are fewer and fewer companies who see any value in selling ad space. On those so you either have to do a subscription thing um or you kind of just you're just kind of doing it for fun like those are those are kind of the options now it's very hard to do a wide ranging widely available free show that doesn't have some sort of subscription tier um so i got really lucky that i was able to do this with a company that has somehow survived the vicissitudes of the last five or six years that um they got bought by Amazon, which probably bad in the long run, but at least in the short to medium term has kept me employed. So, you know, I I've, again, it's like, I was really in the some of the right places at the right times. I happened to be living in LA at that point. So I could go and I could have meetings with them, which was really handy. Like I could actually go in and, and, and see these people and talk to them and like make my pitches in person, which was really cool. Uh, I, I don't know if it's replicable now, you know, like I, I yeah. feel like all of these industries have changed so much that like all I think so much of this was just a product of being in a particular spot at a particular time with, frankly, nothing else to do. I didn't have a lot going on back in 2016, 2017, um, aside from a, a newborn who, you know, well, they kind of they those things tend to take care of themselves in some way, shape or form. <laughs>
2: Well, okay. One of the things I wanted to ask about because I listened to the fall of Rome and then I got into the tides of history. Uh, I really have enjoyed the th- most recent thing you've been doing with tides of history, where which I feel like was sort of unimaginably ambitious at the start. We're, like, We're going to start at the dawn of humanity <laughs> and just kind of work our way up from there. Uh, but it has been fascinating, absolutely. My the other history podcast that I used to listen to was Hardcore History with Dan Carlin. Oh, yeah. And yours is very different from that one in that you are way more tightly structured in your episodes. They're way more focused. You clearly you're, you're doing a ton of reading, a ton of research, but you're also writing out a script for yourself to stay on topic. And his feels like. More the Joe Rogan model of we're just gonna kind of like you know, we're he's clearly doing some research and stuff too, and has stuff interesting source material, but he's also at times just gonna get off on these asides, and then the whole thing is gonna end up being six fucking hours, and it's a very different sort of approach to it. And I I wondered sometimes when you are putting together these episodes, the way you do it seems like a lot more work, frankly, and that's (laughs) coming from somebody who. You know, Chad and I do one of these podcasts that is basically two dudes talking about stuff. And I don't usually like to listen to those kinds of podcasts that I like to listen to the ones where somebody is very tightly structured. But I also know from just doing even our kind of podcast that that makes it a lot more work. And so I'm interested in, like, what your process is for these. It seems like a ton of reading has to go into each one. Uh, And you also seem to care so much about explaining to people. Here's how we know what we know, and here's the limits of that knowledge. Uh, Here's sort of the methodology behind it. And I'm curious how you decide to strike that balance. So you're not at risk of boring anybody with too much of that, but it also feels more responsible than the way some other people do it.
1: I I really appreciate that uh, because I do, I do try really hard at it and it, it is a lot of work, uh, but it's, it's work that I enjoy doing. I want to make that as clear as I can. First of all, like, that's just like, like, I love doing this shit. The, The part that I really enjoyed about being an academic was getting to read lots of stuff and synthesize it and come up with a story that comes out of that or some sort of, um, some sort of, um, narrative, it, you know, like, even if I'm not telling the story of a specific person, like the story of a culture, or the story of a particular set of developments over time, that was the stuff that I really loved doing. Um, I didn't particularly enjoy doing original research. Like, I don't like archives. I think they smell funny. It's, it's, it's weird. Um, I don't like the librarians are often strange. It's just it's an odd series of, of places to be not not a big fan of it. What I really liked was like doing basically preparing a lecture. I really liked reading all the stuff and the basically that's what I do now I just go through and I spend a couple hours on Google Scholar um, trying to see what are what are kind of the current trends and research on this particular topic um, and I compile a big document that has probably 20 references in it some of mo- some of which I'll read completely most of which I'll kind of browse through to find the relevant parts I make a long outline with um, each of the three segments of the show that I'm doing laid out um, I go back through and I write the cold open very last so this little introductory the, um, vignette featuring oh, that's my favorite so, part I, I love my, the vignette my kids
2: love that part man I I play it on car trips and they that's always they, they hear that little like ding ding and then there's like sound of like an old cart rolling and like grunting and like seagulls and they 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 perk up they're like oh shit, here we go they tune out a little bit when we talk about like DNA lineage and language uh <laughs> linguistic history and stuff like that but they love those those vignettes man
1: look we love we love the carts this is a this is a yeah. cart this is <laughs> yes. a cart friendly show uh smashing pottery the, oh, the, yeah. the soundtrack of human history man uh like the the like I, I think about this now like we broke a plate in the kitchen the other day and I'm like look man that's just tying us to our ancestors that's the nature <laughs> that's, that's the nature of our existence here it's like so i do that bit last after i've kind of gotten a sense for what the structure of the episode is what the story is where it's going how can i sum this up in or or try to like concretize it in the experience of a person real or imagined like so it it does take a lot of work but i think it, it's worthwhile the the hard part and this to, to your point about dan carlin the the hard part is like Is the cutting it down because there's so much information, especially I think topics that I don't know as well or where I haven't done as careful uh, a preparation or as careful an outline. The episodes tend to be longer and more unfocused and not shorter because I just end up sticking in whatever I can think of or whatever I've run across or whatever seems interesting instead of having like a really focused Understanding of where the where the story is going and what I need to say and what I don't so like and I think that's kind of the the blessing and the curse of Dan Carlin is that the you get this incredibly wide-ranging fun engaging story that also you know is is gonna wander a little bit like the man is gonna he's gonna head off into the bush and encounter a rattlesnake from time to time and you're gonna have to (laughs) you're you're gonna have to deal with that as part of the experience I I loved his I loved his show I, I had to teach a class on the Silk Road out of nowhere a couple uh, like, like towards the end of my time doing my phd and i listened to all of his episodes on the mongols i'm like this shit rules, oh yeah man. yeah like that's like that's where i was like oh you can do a history podcast like that's the thing like like tell me more about the wrath of the cons man yeah is, like i was, I it was one of the best ones it was so yeah. good dude it was so I
0: good s- i spent basically a full summer listening to the mongol series while mowing my lawn that's what i would do is i would go out on the weekends and mow the lawn and listen to the yeah. dan carlin hardcore history mongols series series uh Tell us about the pursuit of dadliness, your new venture. Am I correct in saying that the first two episodes dropped today? They
1: they did. One featuring um, our our very own um, co-streamer here, Ben Folks. Uh, we Ben and I talked about uh, something that I hope becomes an iconic saying: the emergency donut. Uh, the the <laughs> which I I think is such a flexible and viable concept. I mean, I, I bought an emergency sandwich yesterday, and it did in fact come in handy. I bought an emergency burrito. Last Friday came in real handy needed to that. I ended up needing that burrito later, uh, it, but it's it, so the pursuit of dadliness, basically I wanted to do, I've always wanted to do a show where I just talk to people. I like talking to people. I like preparing for interviews. I like having fun conversations. Uh, I like the format of it. I like the way in which they, they mimic conversations while being able to convey a lot more information. Um, I think it's a, it's a really approachable format to, to, you know kind of build a, a coherent worldview out of. And so, it's something I've always wanted to do. I I had this list of people that I wanted to talk to, both of you guys, obviously on that list of people that I wanted to talk to. Uh, And it just seemed like the time was right. Like There's there's kind of a a zeitgeisty thing happening with dad culture at this point in time, where I think people are looking for a less patriarchal, less hierarchical way of understanding what it means to be a dad um, and what goes along with that. And I think being able to poke fun at yourself and understand the cringiness that goes along with, with being a dad and just like, you don't have to be self-conscious about liking the shit that you like. <laughs> you can, you can, you can like things. You can, you can, you can like having a home gym. You can like painting Warhammer Forty K miniatures. You know, you can, you can like. I, I recently had a really wonderful conversation with one of my dad's best friends about how he likes to troll the canal by the golf course to pick up uh, to pick up golf balls. He's got a massive collection of golf balls that he's pulled out of the canal. He knows all the best places where they collect. He goes in there when the when the canal dries out. Out at the end of the year and comes back with just a just a a haul a haul of golf balls uh, I, I love that shit man tell me more about your golf balls like tell me more <laughs> about what the like the like because clearly we were talking about it we had a couple of drinks and it brought him so much joy he was so happy about this very tightly buttoned up guy uh, he's a lawyer um very disciplined you know man in his now i think probably in his early to mid 60s but like the golf balls He lived for that. He lived for the golf balls and also having he I think he has 11 TVs in his house. Man loves a TV. Uh, So but like that stuff makes him happy and he's completely unselfconscious about it. He will talk to you about it. Like, I think there's a good lesson there about, you know, kind of sinking into being the person that you were meant to be. And like, you don't have to hide your your golf ball thing. You don't have to hide the fact that you like being in a home gym. You don't like you you can, you don't have to hide the fact that you wear fucking new balances. New balances are great. Comfortable as shit. Like that's, that's fine. And I think there's, there's something more broadly applicable about being in that state where like, just coming to a point of accepting yourself and who you are and where you fit into the world and knowing you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be cool. You can just be yourself. And that's fine. I think uh, that's stuff i've been thinking about for a really long time and i thought that this was a good a good time and a place to put that out there um and to to use that as kind of an organizing principle for talking to lots of people that i wanted to talk to so hopefully hopefully people like it i i'm i'm nervous as hell <laughs> it's, it's hard <laughs> it's hard to put something new out there i forgot how nerve-wracking it could be
2: yeah well one of the things that seems like that makes this an interesting time for something like that is it seems like culturally, at least in America, we have reached sort of a different point where we are different kind of dads for the most part than our dads were. Uh, And they were, of course, different types of dads than their dads. But it's like we're, we're coming to this in an age where, for one thing, men generally are way more involved day to day in childcare that it's not a thing that you know the mom stays home and takes care of the kid, the dad goes off to work, he'll come home at the end of the day, tussle the tyke's hair, and then sit down to a steak dinner. You know, it's it's way more of a hands-on, ongoing, like very actively involved process for dads. But it also seems like men in general we are undergoing a little bit of a cultural reckoning and transformation about what what our identity is how we fit into a society uh, what what maybe we haven't been doing that we ought to be doing what we ought to expect of ourselves and so it seems like a really interesting time to be having some of those conversations and i'm curious like when you when you approach it from like thinking of sort of those big picture topics like how do you see yourself kind of working with that stuff? Like working with that we are in, we're kind of on a new frontier here, trying to figure out how to be adult men, how to be dads, how to how to do all that stuff without just leaning on the models that other people gave us.
1: I think you're asking a great question. And I don't have a succinct answer for it, but all I can say is that it's a process. Right. Like that, that it starts with being willing to ask yourself sometimes pretty hard questions about why we feel the way we do and why we react the way we do to things like that, like to be an adult man means that you've got to have a reckoning exactly as you put it with, with the baggage that we've brought along with like the legacies of, you know, guys being dudes for, for centuries here. So whether that's kind of the, the deep, the deeply rooted structural patriarchy that, that we live in, which is a real thing. It really exists. You know, like this is, I'm probably preaching at least partially to the converted here, but like patriarchy is a real thing. There really are deep gender inequities that are built into our society and have been for a very long time. And so now coming to a a point where if you want to be a man who exists in a world where you don't want to slot yourself into a position of unearned superiority over, uh, over the other gender, like then you're gonna have to think hard about, about your position in the world and how and why things came to be the way that they are. You've got to think hard about, you know, what are my responsibilities? Like what do, what do I need to work on as a person? I mean, I think it's it's, it's just a process of like trying to understand yourself and, and, and the position that you occupy that like you know there's there's a, a cultural construction that goes along with with being a dad. Or that goes along with fatherhood. You know, there are stereotypes. There's like the steak dinner, you come home, tussle, tussle the hair of the steak dinner, right? Like these are like these are scripts that we've been given that have kind of accumulated over decades or centuries, ideas of how men are supposed to behave and what they're supposed to do. And trying to figure out, like in a world where we're not doing straight up patriarchy anymore and you know, you're not doing the single family or the single, uh, parent provider household type deal. What does equitable parenting look like? Like, how are you supposed to like, like I, I like being a dude, you know what I mean? Like I, I like doing guy coded shit. I I'm, and I don't feel like that is an inherently toxic or bad thing. You know, I, I like watching guys hit each other sometimes. Uh, I like, uh, I, I, I like, eating greasy foods. I like smoking meat. I like doing things that are, that are traditionally guy coded. Um, And trying to balance that with understanding the ways in which dude stuff is often exclusionary or hurtful um, is, I mean, I think that's part of the work you have to do. If you want to enjoy that stuff, I think it would behoove you to think about the larger associations that go along with that. I think that's part of being a responsible adult human being who at least presumably wants to live in a better world than the one that we came into. Like these are, these are ongoing processes and conversations to have. Like I was talking to, uh, uh, Sam Sanders, who N- NPR, uh, former, formerly of NPR, did their politics show, did their pop culture show, and now hosts a show for Vulture. Super, super, super smart. But we were talking about the trope of the gay uncle, which now is like kind of a thing that, that like the gay uncle is now like a stock character that you can deploy in, in various media. And it's fun. And we were talking about the gay uncle as a counterpoint for kind of more traditional masculinity and fatherhood, right? That like a lot of the things that seem fun and appealing about the gay uncle are things that straight men don't feel like they're allowed to do. Um, they're, they're not allowed to dress in particular ways. They're not allowed to talk in particular ways. They're not allowed to interact with their kids in particular ways. Uh, and that I I think there's a lot of like that holding up a mirror that, that dudes should be doing in this day and age. And it drives me nuts when they won't like there's, there's nothing that kills me more than when a dad is like well i'm babysitting the kids this weekend like no motherfucker right. they're your yeah. kids they are your <laughs> kids that's, that's you're you're talking about the baseline thing that you are supposed to do as a parent is to be present while your kids are there so that the is so that the other parent can go do something else like it's, it's stuff like that where like just the utter lack of uh, of self-reflection about where you stand in in this world of parenting and and masculinity i'm like just pl- like just just think a little bit harder just think a little yeah. bit harder okay
0: <laughs> yeah i'm surprised even in this day and age like when i was on the dadliness podcast we taped last week i believe you said it's going to be out in october i was talking about my minivan and i was like <laughs> mm-hmm. The car salesman could not get it through his head, no matter how many times I told him that I was going to be the person in our family driving the minivan. It wasn't going to be my wife. He kept saying like, oh, your wife is going to like driving this baby. And I would have to be like, no, no it's going I'm, to be I'm going to like it. Yeah, it's going to be me. Uh, and I'm always surprised how many people will roll up on me and like say something about daddy daycare. Uh, and I will have to be like, Well, they are my kids, so <laughs> <laughs> sort of part of my job. It's not like an you extra- have a certain curricular... responsibility here, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's not an extracurricular activity for me to watch them, but I guess it strikes me that the whole idea of dadliness and the way that you want to approach it, and I think the way that Ben and I want to approach it also has so much to do with like the acknowledgement of women in a somewhat non-traditional way. Like there has always been momliness, right? There has always been a culture of momliness, but I think it has been incredibly limiting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to even talk about dadliness in the way that you wanna talk about it, I think has a lot to do with like recognizing that women are ha- literally half of the people mm-hmm. and that they, you know they should also have a fully realized experience in our society. Uh, And it always is very jarring to me to run up against someone like you were just talking about who like you go especially you see this at school, you Mm -hmm. go out into the world of school and you meet both children and other dads where you were like, wow, you are still doing it the old fashioned way. Mm -hmm. And I can tell that in the way that you relate to the kids and the way that uh, your children act all the time. So I'm wondering. If if you have thoughts about how dadliness relates to momliness and, and also uh I guess you were speaking to this already, but sort of the ongoing evolution of our lives and where gender issues fit into that.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's the any any good cultural criticism of any kind of doesn't matter what period you're talking about—present day, future, past—involves denaturalizing your categories of analysis. Whoa! Wow, the fuck, man! this motherfucker
0: okay. said vicitudes <laughs> I'm gonna, ten minutes ago. Yeah,
1: I'm. I'm gonna. Okay, I'm gonna break this down a little.
2: You bit. Also said no. reefer, so he's keeping it balanced. I <laughs> appreciate it, that. Look,
1: you know, I'm, I'm. I'm. I'm a man of many parts. What can I say? The. You, you, what I mean by that is, you can't treat. The way that you approach the world, the kind of assumptions you have about how things are supposed to work, how people are supposed to behave as if they are eternal and natural things. Right. They are the product of these very specific cultural contexts that we live in that are defined. We made them up like, in other yeah, words. Yes. Yes. And, and the fact that we made them up doesn't make them any less real or any less impactful in the way that they shape our behavior or our self-understanding or anything like that. They're they're a hundred percent real. Like the like like racism is a social construct that has very real consequences, right? Like patriarchy is a social construct that has very real consequences. Like these things, like that money is a social construct that has some very real consequences for us, you know, like this sh- it's, it's all made up, but just cause it's made up doesn't mean it's not meaningful, but, but we have to be able to practice and it's a, it's a habit of mind, right? Like that you have to cultivate over and over is to, when you, when you feel yourself reacting to something some way, or when you, when you look at a situation and you say, Oh yeah, this makes sense that it's like this to take a step back and be like, well, why is that? Why, why is it that I feel like as a dude in this particular moment, I'm supposed to react to this in, in this fashion. Why do I, why is it that um, the, the minivan salesman automatically assumes that, um, that, that my wife is going to be driving this. Why is it that my kid's school when a kid is sick always calls my wife first, right? right. Even though she's not picking up the phone. Cause she's in a meeting, she's got shit to do right? Like she's like, she's not, she's not sitting here waiting for the phone to ring to come pick up the kids. I am, I ain't got shit going. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for that call. Uh, Like to, to treat those not as isolated little things that are like ephemera floating around the world, but as, as constitutive of some larger stuff that's going on and that it's worth understanding that it's worth taking a step back and asking the questions and asking why things are this way. What are the forces that go into that? And, because if you don't understand why they are the way they are, how could you ever ask, wh- wh- how could they be different or how could they be better or why the, like y- things don't have to be the way that they are. And this is the great lesson of studying history is that people have done a lot of different shit in a lot of different ways. Um, for reasons that made sense to them at the time. We do shit for reasons that make sense to us, according to our own kind of cultural logics that we've got out there. Uh, But they don't have to be this way. We can, we can do things better. Like you don't have to be (laughs) Jesus Christ. This, this killed me. Uh, Last year, my wife went out to like a a kindergarten mom's dinner um, and, and drinks night. And some of the women there had had to leave detailed written lists of how to put the kids to bed for their husbands. And, I'm like, this is you can't be serious now. And and like I recognize that not all of that is sheer incompetence on the part of those dudes. There's also probably some like playing a mom role um, that goes that goes along with that, like in a kind of like that part of part of what those some of those women saw as being their job as a mom was to cover for male incompetence or to to work with an assumption of male incompetence um momliness to to your to your question chad i i think it depends a lot on what particular segment of society that we're talking about like there's i i think as as much or probably more than dadliness i think it's more tightly defined by by status race uh And 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 geographic locale. I mean, I think if you look at social media, there's a very specific, I would say, like Utah centric version of momliness (laughs) that involves like a big, broad, broad rimmed hat and the Stanley Cup. Uh, as as the symbols of this particular way yeah. of doing, going to things. pick
2: Braden up from soccer practice, kind it's, of mom's it, shit. Yeah,
1: exactly. You 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 know, you even know the names. Yes, that's also also exists in large numbers, and I would say like Gilbert and Chandler, Arizona. Uh, <laughs> that's the so there there are these versions, there's, but there's also like. A Manhattan version, like a particular version, a, a particular version that resides there. There's like a Midwest suburbs version of these things. I think that also exists for dads, but less so. I think the because um, I think that mom's social networks tend to be much more physically rooted and small scale, um, like it, because they're like con- more constantly talking to people. And existing in social spaces than dads are. Um, like sociability, I think is is assumed to be an inherent part of momliness in a way that it's not for dads. Like dads yeah. are often assumed to be kind of like lone wolves or solo operators, you know. Like- or
2: I mean, this is a thing Jen and I have talked about a lot that they're often because between working and dadding, they don't have a ton of other free time. They often let their friendships kind of wither and do not maintain them as well as women often do. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, and you know, you and I were kind of talking about that a little bit on the pursuit of dadliness, how that, especially as we watch some of the older men of our generation, our father's generation kind of get to a retirement age and realize like, do they suddenly wake up to find that they don't have a ton of interests or that their social groups Mm -hmm. aren't as robust, um, because they, and, in fairness, because they were busy. They were busy doing all these other things that they felt like they had to do, you know, that they felt like they had to be this this role of the provider was a very important part of the identity. And, you know, the thing you were saying about our social constructs reminds me of a thing that I I love that you often repeat on your podcast, which is that we often tend to think that we live in the best of all possible worlds. And that is not necessarily true. That we look around at some of these systems that we live with and under and think, it had to be this way, this was the only way to do it. We wound, we we have reached, maybe we're the only people to have reached the final end point of history in which everything has been tried, we figured it all out and this is the way to do it. And we sort of close our minds off then to the possibilities that no, we're just like these other assholes uh, who came before us, we we stumbled around, we decided this was the way to do it. Just like, you know, people living in these kind of concentric circle houses where they did it for a thousand years and nobody does it anymore. And it's hard, I think, to sort of keep that sense of perspective about your own world. It's easier to do it when you look back on the past, like something I hear Dan Carlin say on his podcast is like asking a history professor, what's the most important thing to remember when studying history? And he said that we know their future and they did not. And it's hard to kind of keep that perspective about your own culture at times. Yeah, we're we're no different than we're no
1: different than they are. We're no we're no better than they were. Like there's there's this I, I think there's this grand assumption that people in the past must have been somehow different from us, that they must have been not quite as smart or not quite as enlightened, or like just that they were somehow just enough not like us that we can hold ourselves to be separate from them in some meaningful way. Right, like, and this is often an unspoken assumption. I think if you if you asked people straight up, they would probably say, "No, you know, we're all we're pretty much the same." But the assumption is still kind of there, and it underlies the the way in which we think we're special. Kind of like this tyranny of the present. Um, You know, you look around at our world, we got a lot of like child grinding machines. You know what I mean? Like we've got a (laughs) like we we've got a lot of things that turn that turn human beings into grist for various kinds of mills. You know, we're we're not doing great on the environment. We could probably be doing better on that. Um, there's there's lots of there, there's lots of inequalities built into our society. There There's lots of things like look at American government, too. I mean, like this is a pretty haphazard ass rickety set of constructions that we got here. <laughs> yeah, um, we've
2: recently discovered that it feels yeah, like.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like there's. Part of if you if you like the United States and you want it to survive and you think there's some value there should probably be aware of the baseline fact that it doesn't have to exist. You know, like no political entity has to be around forever. Um, No particular uh, economic arrangement has to last forever. The set of assumptions that underlie why people do the things that they do in the ways that they do are mutable. You know, like there's there's lots of stuff that doesn't have to be the way that it is. And when you look at the past, because because you're stepping into a foreign country, you are more likely to understand the alienness of it and understand the kind of constructed nature of their reality. And that's a good habit to build when you come back to your own place in time to be like, well why is this that way? Like, why is it that we have a Congress that's full of 80 something year olds? Like why, like why, why is Diane Feinstein under uh, power of attorney and yet still voting on, you know, very important <laughs> yes. matters for the future of our country. Like that doesn't seem like it has to be that way. Like probably do something about that. Um, there's it, it helps to step outside of yourself for long enough to practice that habit. To practice yeah. the habit of of looking critically at things and and examining your assumptions about why they are the way they are.
0: My daughter uh, turned 11 yesterday. And we had a party for her. By the way, to, not to throw back to your golf ball uh, conversation, but there was a 20-minute stint at this party where all of the boomers talked about shredding documents. Oh, hell yeah. Just like that whole topic, like yep. what you shred, where you take, if you need to get some stuff shredded, what business do you take it to? Do you have to take the staples out? What, you know, just shredded. They talked sh- and it's like, they were having a great time talking about shredding documents. Uh, but my daughter just started middle school. And by the way, we are now also involved in a complete reset where I have to convince the school to contact me instead of my wife. We oh had, yeah. Like, They'll never get done that. it. They never just, get it we had finally got it straight at the elementary school. And now I'm like, Oh shit, we are starting at square one again. Uh, But my daughter starting middle school just got a phone. I tweeted about this yesterday. I don't know if you guys saw it. (sighs) She was convinced that all of her friends were going to have phones and that she needed one. And on paper, my wife and I theoretically, philosophically would be dead set against getting our 11 year old daughter a phone. But then she starts to talk about how she's going to be left out of like, her friends planning stuff. Like if she doesn't yeah. have a phone, she's not going to be on the text threads. She's not going to know about stuff. She is essentially going to become the friend who gets left behind.
2: Yeah, they'll all be loling and omging in the group chat, and she'll yeah. be frozen out. Yeah, yeah. She'll no, emo- no
0: emojis for her. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. And so we ended up getting her phone heavily parental controlled on the on the iPhone, and I think that what she will soon discover is that the phone is incredibly boring. Uh, but yesterday for the first time she was at her cousin's house and I was texting with her. It was the first time I have ever texted with my 11 year old daughter. And it was incredibly adorable because like at the end of all of her texts, she would be like, love you. And like put a heart on there and I would be like, Oh, let's
2: see how long that lasts.
0: Right. Exactly. (laughs) So that's what I was thinking. I was like, I had this sudden revelation like, Oh my God, we have crossed a, 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 a quote unquote growing up Rubicon. Like, we will mm-hmm. never go back. My daughter is a person who has a phone, and I'm texting with her, and the process of texting with her is adorable. It makes me feel proud. And it's also incredibly heartbreaking because she is, she is leveled up. Mm-hmm. She's almost there, so to speak. Uh, and I don't know what the question that I have at the end of that statement is, except to say, <laughs> That that fatherhood is such a weird mix of absolute joy, absolute fear, and like bittersweet heartbreak. Yeah. Uh, so how are you going to talk about that on your fun podcast about dadliness? <laughs> well,
1: I I think the I, I think it starts with admitting those emotions right like and kind of sinking into them and like and trying to understand what they mean and and being comfortable with the contradictions that are inherent in them right so like a, a couple of years ago now um, my dad told me this really harrowing story about uh his family and about uh some like a secret that his mom who's now deceased had kept regarding his older brother having had like it, it was it's it's very complicated but like it it was basically a a, a a decades-long betrayal by his beloved mother, um, of of the whole family and of him specifically. And he yeah. tells me the story, and he's like, "Yeah, whatever, you know." Anyway, and <laughs> like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? You don't just anyway that shit away. someday I'll tell the full story, and you real and you'll realize precisely how fucked up this whole this whole thing was. But like, you don't want to do that. You yeah. don't want to have. You don't want to take, like, what turns out to be decades of. Like really intense family shit that probably, you know, to use the popular stuff, counts as trauma. Uh, y- you, know, you don't want to just, you don't want to, well, anyway, that away and you don't want to, well, anyway, the feelings about your daughter becoming an independent, um, technological entity, uh, who can communicate with you at any point in time. Like, or it, my son today, he's like, dad, I don't want you to go come to the gate at school with me. You can walk your, you can walk, um, my sister in, but, but you, you give me a hug in the parking lot and I'm going yeah. and I'm like, well, shit. <laughs> and like, I've seen, I've seen this day coming. I knew it was going to yeah. happen. Like he's been building toward it for some time, but to hear him express it in those concrete terms messed with me a little bit. I, I had, I sat in silence on the car ride home. I uh, I had to, I had to process that one for a little while, but like, I think that's, that's how you deal with it. You deal with it by dealing with it, by, by actually thinking about it and and why this makes you feel that way. And you know, not trying to wall off those emotions or like bury them under a mask of like, you know, dad grunts or, um, or, um, or anger also like anger is a very easy emotion for, for men to reach for. And it
2: has been a popular one for among dads for decades. Yes. If not centuries, yeah
1: it's, it's, uh, it's pretty easy to dip into that. Well, Uh, we're, we're, we are conditioned to do that. That is an acceptable, that is an acceptable um, kind of displacement emotion for us. Right. Like the, so I think to your question, Chad, I mean, I think the fact that you're sitting and you're processing it and you're thinking about it and you're, and, and you're, you're wondering, you know, where this leads and you're using it as an opportunity to reflect back on, on things that have happened before. I think that's, that's fucking awesome. That's like, that's the roadmap, man. Like that's what you should be doing.
2: Okay, we're we're running up right up against an hour, so we gotta let you go. One thing I did want to ask though, has been on my mind for a while, is I know that you know Rome was kind of your specialty uh, for a while, especially the the kind of the end point, the the <laughs> decline point. Uh and especially an interest in ancient Rome seems to be a fairly common thing among men, among dads. Uh, for some reason, it's sort of like ancient Rome and World War II or oh, Civil yeah. War history. Those are the main things. And I wonder sometimes why, why Rome? When there were so many other civilizations you could get into, is it just that we know a lot about them? Were they more special or bigger or just like the longevity of it? Like, why do you think it is that a certain kind of dude, and I include myself among these certain kind of dudes Mm -hmm. is so fascinated by ancient Rome?
1: So I think there are a few different ways of coming at it. I think there are people who are fascinated with it because, because there's a lot of it, because we can know a lot about it right? So we have an enormous number of texts. We have narrative texts. We have, um, inscriptions that the Romans left for themselves. So in, in a lot of cases we can actually see Romans telling their own stories and and telling us what they thought of themselves and how they wanted to be remembered, um, or about things that they had done that they were proud of. Uh, we have a lot of archaeology of the Roman world. The, the archaeology of the Roman world is very distinctive um, because they built a lot of big monumental buildings, but even their like day-to-day lives were just packed full of shit. They had a lot of shit um they were it it was a very like 1950s suburban um kind of material culture where they made a lot of um uh, they made a lot of stuff that that could be discarded. Uh, so we have enormous quantities of roman pottery. We we know what roman houses looked like. We know what they cooked with. We know like we know a lot about what their lives were like and so i think um, for men of a particularly completionist mindset, which I think a lot of a lot of dudes are, the fact that we can know so much is, is an inherently attractive thing. I think there's another strain of interest in Rome that sees it as um, a kind of a perfectly ordered hierarchical society. Um, and one in which people knew their place and they knew how they were supposed to behave. And um, when men were men, and women were women and Romans were Romans and barbarians were barbarians. Right. And so it's this world that in, from their point of view, has these clearly defined hierarchies and boundaries around it. And I think that there's a certain kind of person who finds that very attractive. Um, Hmm. it's the, I would call them statue guys. Right. Like okay. you, the, they, they really, the, this is the kind of person who would get really worked up about the, the idea of these pristine white marble statues originally having, having been painted like gaudy old West sex workers. Like that's the, which is how Roman statues looked. They painted them fuckers. Like they were not, these were not like white marble things. They really did look um, pretty garish. Um, the kind of guy who gets mad about that. Uh, has a very different interest in ancient Rome than one who is, let's say, interested in why the crowd was really into watching people get their gut spilled in the Colosseum, right? Like that is a fascinating insight into how and why Roman society worked the way that it did. Um, But the people who are making that identification are almost certainly going to be much more concerned with the view down into the arena than with the view up from the arena. Yeah, both d- very different ways of looking at Roman society. You know what I mean? Like there's, uh, there's a lot there. There's a lot to think with in Rome, and we we can. It's a very helpful series of points, uh, series of references for us to use in understanding our world. Um, they're they're touchstones you know we have the fall of the roman republic the fall of the roman empire we have you know moves toward authoritarianism these are these are things that existed in the roman world that that we can think with in our own time and so i think they remain popular for those reasons but for very different reasons for very different for different groups of people
0: <laughs> yeah how far is patrick wyman from hosting one of these history channel shows that is like top ten accomplishments of ancient aliens. Like that's uh, where I see you. That's the <laughs> ultimate apex of the Patrick Wyman career path. Is that you will be one like Tim? Uh,
2: when Tim Kennedy went yeah, and hunted Hitler? Oh yeah, yeah Tim yeah. Kennedy's
0: yeah. hunting Hitler. Didn't I will find
2: him from what I heard. Yeah, but...
0: no, slip through his fingers. Ah, uh, <laughs> like Patrick Wyman's, you know, top ten deadliest weapons of ancient society <laughs> okay yeah, that's so, what i want
1: so that is a hundred percent a show i would make i i would if if anybody wants to make a show about history's deadliest weapons by all means get at me because i could i could that there's some meat there for me to work with No, I've so i've done some tv stuff uh i i did a show on the coliseum uh for the history channel last year Uh, I actually, there was one, I did another one for them on ancient empires that actually is just coming out now, I think is just premiering on the History Channel, like, I think it was Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday nights of this Labor Day week. Um, I completely forgot that that was happening. I was supposed to, (laughs) I was supposed to tweet about that. Um, So I'm, I'm doing them as they come up, but I'm really trying not to do the more like ancient aliensy stuff like i've gotten offers like would you like like do you want to be an expert interviewed about you know like greatest inventions of history or something Eh, not really like that's that i don't i don't really want to go to la to get get paid a 100 bucks to uh to do that that sounds that sounds like it's not that much fun um yeah i i think so i like all i i like doing the tv stuff especially because it's usually a chance to go to a city where they've got a really good sandwich or two um, like like it's a guarantee like if you if you if you see me being interviewed in a tv format that man i just put down an enormous sandwich the night before just <laughs> packed packed with meats i've got like i guarantee you as i'm sitting there wearing my blazer or whatever i've got meat sweats going on underneath that a little bit um, of mustard at the oh yeah of your lips. <laughs> yeah uh, like I, I think in in the the last case it was uh uh, buffalo sauce and blue cheese It was stuck mm, there um wow. i had a i had a sandwich i had a, a sandwich from fat Sals in los angeles uh that had um chicken fingers mozzarella sticks french fries um cheddar blue cheese dressing oh, buffalo Jesus. sauce uh and then i had a separate thing of bacon cheeseburger fries so it was a whole ass bacon Naturally. cheeseburger yeah. uh chopped up on a on a large bed of french fries so i was feeling a little uh I, I was feeling a little bloated next morning. We rolled into, rolled do that filming. Um, so it's, but I don't know, like, I don't think a lot of TV shit is pretty, is pretty bad. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot of history TV shit, especially is pretty bad. So if somebody wants to do something good, I'd do it. Um, yeah. I, my ears are open, but I think the chances of the incentives aligning for somebody to want to spend money to make something good, or something that I would consider to be like worthwhile and good, or probably fairly slim at this point. Again, if they happen, like get at me, man. Oh, let's talk. But yeah. Yeah. Someday.
0: Uh, I feel like we barely scratched the surface. We barely <laughs> put a dent in what we wanted to, or could talk to you about. Uh, but we can't keep you all day. The weight room calls. You're probably going straight into cleans from here. So uh, 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 power, power cleans
1: and push presses today. Yes. Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, <laughs> See, I knew, I knew it was something like that. Uh, Patrick, thanks so much for coming on. Everyone's going to love this. You're a big star. So we appreciate you stooping to come on Dude. our little dog and pony show.
1: It a- absolutely. Anytime you guys, uh, again, I cannot thank you guys enough uh for being guests on my new show for, for making the co-main event. Uh, it, like really and truly this has been an absolute pleasure and I, uh, I can't thank you enough for having made co event and for all of your writing over the years, you guys, you guys rule.
0: Uh, everyone knows where to find you, I would assume, but tell us again, where can they find all of your stuff
2: uh, online everywhere?
1: You, you can find me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman. You can find me on Twitter at Wyman underscore Patrick, um, search for the pursuit of dadliness on any podcast platform. It's available tides of history available everywhere. Um, the Verge, uh, The Verge.
2: I recommend The Verge. Great it's, book.
1: It's a fun book. I, I snuck in a reference to Blade ice skating uphill in the in the <laughs> conclusion, which I completely forgot about until somebody mentioned it about six months ago. I wrote that in the fugue state. Don't recall that. Uh, but uh, but yeah. So so that's that's where you can find the stuff. I mean, or just just hit me up. Let's talk, man.
0: Sounds good, Patrick. Thanks so much. Uh, let's talk soon. Good luck with The Pursuit of Dadliness. I think it's going to be a hit. Uh, As for the rest of you, we'll talk to you tomorrow for the Friday Power Hour. Thanks for listening. As for right now, we're done.